Well, good morning. I have had a lingering cough for uh, a few weeks now, so there may come a point in the middle of this lesson where we need to take like a five-minute break while I hack over here. Uh, don't mind that. Uh, we'll get through it, and, uh, and we'll be all right. Um, last week, we introduced the uh, theme for the year, which is Christ's vision. The idea of which is learning to look at the world through the lens of Jesus. There's all sorts of, of uh, experiences we've had, of, of things that we have learned, of things that we've seen uh, that shape the way that we see the world. But as Christians, we should have at least one thing that unifies our worldview, at least one thing that helps us to see things from a similar perspective and, and to see things in the same way, and that is Jesus Christ. So we're going to be able to look at a lot of different topics this year, but try to shape the way that we view them through the cross of Christ. We're going to try to shape the way that we view them through the life and the teaching and the death and, and the resurrection, through the story of which Jesus is the climax. And we're going to start that here today and, and going on for this first series this year where we're going to deal with the topic of family. Uh, family is something that, uh, in one way or another, impacts the lives of every person here. And yet, as Christians... We're going to have a, a different kind of perspective on it. Jesus had a different kind of perspective on family. Um, one of the things that sometimes is difficult as a church, and a lot of churches struggle with this, and, and it's, it's not an easy task, is if the church is doing what it should do, it should be made up of a lot of different kinds of people. People from a lot of different backgrounds, people from a lot of different experiences, people from a lot of different uh, uh, cultures even, and, and, and should be united into one universal family of God. Um, and if that happens, then what that means is pretty much any topic, you're going to have people there who are going to view it a little bit differently. And I think family as a whole is going to be one of those topics that everyone here is going to have a different take on because... Just about everyone here is going to have different experiences. You're going to have a different experience with your mom than I have with my mom. Or with your dad than I have with my dad. Or with your siblings. Or whether or not you have siblings. Whether you're an only child or whether you're part of like one of 12 children. That shapes the way you think about family. Um, the way you think about distant family. Or the way you think about whether or not you live close to family or not. Or whether or not you had a good family. Or whether your family is, is a source of, of tension and frustration in your life. Whether or not you look forward to seeing your parents again or whether or not your parents are still alive, whether or not you uh, look forward to seeing your children at, at uh, holidays, or maybe you've lost a child, or maybe you don't have a good relationship with your children and they don't visit you on it. Like all of those things shape this conversation. Not to mention there are some people who have never been married and there are some people who didn't have children and there are some people who uh, don't, they, maybe they are uh, widowed or a widower. And you look at your life and you don't, you don't really even have much of, uh, of what you would call a, a family. It, you, know, you don't have a family at your house. And you look at all those and all of those things will shape the topic. And one of the difficulties for the church is to reach everybody or to, to speak in such a way where everyone finds meaning in that. Um, sometimes uh, I know churches have been criticized because it seems they cater to the young family unit. 
Uh, like everything they do, whether it's marriage seminars or parenting retreats or family getaways or whether it's uh, classes on how to parent or whether it's uh, the sermon on Mother's Day and then the sermon on Father's Day. And, and you can take both of those sermons and it, that's a tough thing to do because if I say father, if I say God is father and you have a terrible relationship with your father, that sermon might not hit the same way if I say God is father and you've always had a father who's there who loved you and provided for you. And so like, all of those things shape the way that we approach this topic. That's one of the reasons why I like the idea of the theme for the year, which is Christ vision. Because one thing that can help us, I believe, whether you have a good family or a bad family or no family or near family or distant family, there is a unifying key to how we can approach some of these issues. And that unifying key is Jesus himself. Um, What I mean is that Jesus can be the thing that we can all reach out to and hold on to, whether we have a good family or not. Whether we have a happy family or a frustrating family. Whether we have a good family dynamic or a family dynamic that uh, is completely untraditional and, uh, and is not what, uh, what you know, maybe, uh, maybe people generally think of when they think of the happy little church family. There's an idea that people have in their heads when they think of the good, happy church family. Uh, when people come here as visitors and they have that, that good, happy, traditional family church, people often bend over backwards to go and to meet and to greet them. But if someone comes in and they're older and maybe it looks like they've had a rough life and they don't have anyone with them, it can be easy to kind of nod your head, uh, maybe uh, give them a, a happy welcome or something like that, but not really make as much of an effort because sometimes family can put people on different priority lists for a church. And I think that's the type of thing we need to work on. Um, I think that's the type of thing pretty much every church needs to work on. Valuing all people as essential, valuable members of the family of God. Viewing all people as, uh, as having a crucial role to play in the body of Christ. Viewing visitors as each welcome and desired to become part of our, our family as well. Um, so we're going to look at family, and we're going to try to do so looking uh, through uh, what we have called Christ vision. Um, if you've ever read your Bible, if you're reading through Genesis right now, uh, you know, some people at the beginning of the year, they start doing their, their uh, Bible reading, hoping to read the Bible in a year. And that means probably right now more people are reading Genesis than at any other point in the year. And probably by like February, only a couple of us are still uh, actually sticking with the Bible reading itself. But so right now, a lot of people are focused on Genesis, which is a good thing. Um, but if you read Genesis, especially with an eye toward family, you're going to realize something. Uh, there are a lot of really messed up families in the book of Genesis. Um, whether it's the very first family who gets banished from the Garden of Eden and then one brother kills another brother. Uh, that's a really bad start to family in the story of the Bible. And yet that's, that's the first one we get. And then you keep reading from there and it doesn't get that much better. Uh, you see an entire world that becomes just like the chaos of Cain killing Abel. And so God restarts the world after the flood, choosing a new family with, with Noah. And immediately after that, you get into some bad family problems again with Noah and his sons, uh, one of whom ends up being cursed and the other ones are blessed. And, and family dynamics are again shifted in an unhealthy and, and, and uh, difficult, uncomfortable direction. Well, you keep reading and finally he chooses Abraham and you think, okay, great. He's choosing a family through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. Finally, family's going to get on the right track, right? 
It doesn't take very long to read the story of Abraham. We, we talked about it some in our classes on, on Wednesday nights. Uh, family gets out of hand quickly. One of the first things he does is he says his wife is his sister. Uh, and there's, there is a little bit of truth to that. But he does it for the purposes of deceiving a king so that the king will take his wife and spare his life. And all of a sudden, Abraham gives his wife away, which isn't a great thing to do. Um, and then... After having her returned, he ends up taking another wife. Uh, it was his wife's idea, uh, Hagar, and he ends up sleeping with her. But then they end up casting her out, and his wife and Hagar can't, can't get along with each other. And all of a sudden, you have more conflict and more uh, of, of an uncomfortable family dynamic. You have sin that just is permeating this family. And then all of a sudden, you have uh, a story of Lot. And his family situation doesn't turn out very good. His wife ends up not making it out of Sodom and Gomorrah, at least not very far. Um, and then he ends up having a, an incestuous relationship. And you have sin that starts to permeate that family. And then you keep reading and you see that um, Jacob ends up uh, fleeing from his brother who wants to kill him. And going to his uncle to get swindled by his uncle to marry a girl he doesn't want to marry. Before finally being able to marry the girl he does want to marry. And those two girls who are both now his wife can't get along with with one another because one of them knows she's loved but the other one can have children and all of a sudden like family tension is throughout the whole thing you keep reading he ends up having a bunch of sons the 11th one is named joseph and joseph ends up becoming the favored son so guess how the other brothers feel about that not great they end up hating him to the point that they want to kill him i mean we've seen quite a few of these stories like with each family we've been introduced to where sibling rivalry escalates to the point of, of murderous feelings. Right? That's just the first book of the Bible. Uh, it's not a great book for learning wonderful, happy family values. But it does teach us something about God. It teaches us, I think, right off the bat, that God doesn't need us to have that perfect, wonderful family life in order for us to be a meaningful part of his story. God doesn't need us to have that perfect, wonderful family life in order to work through us or in order to, to be accepted. Uh, God can do incredible things through each and every one of us here, and that matters. Because there are people who, if they look at their family and it's not what everyone else's family looks like, they think, well, I won't be welcome at that church. That's only for the people who have had everything, you know, perfect. By the way, even those families that look perfect... No family's perfect. Uh, the, the more you pry and the more you dig, every family has its issues. Uh, but some of them are kind of invisible issues. Some of them are pretty visible issues. And we, we tend to, uh, to judge more harshly the visible issues than the invisible issues. And people feel that. And so all of a sudden, a church can be a place that's very welcoming if you have that nice, happy family. But if you have that difficult family story, all of a sudden, the church doesn't feel like the place for you. And that's tragic. Because I think as soon as we put on our Jesus lens, we begin to realize that that's not the way Jesus actually approaches this. Um, in fact, if you look at what Jesus says about family, it doesn't sound like your traditional happy family seminar that they'll have at a church. Um, Jesus says some things that will make you pause and think, what? And you're like, why did Jesus come to earth? Well, there's a number of reasons he gives, but I'll tell you one of them. He says, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. 
It's like, well, there's, there's some reasons I think you did come to bring peace on earth. You, you called us to be peacemakers. And, and even at your birth, the angels are singing peace among men and goodwill. And, and like, it sounds like you're bringing peace on earth. He says, don't think that I came to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Because I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his, her mother, a, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Who did not pick up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And you read that and you think, like, are you really saying you came to destroy families? Uh, I came to bring a sword and to set families against one another so that a man's enemies over his own household? Like, that's what his words are. Is that really... Is that really? That's not the most Jesus-y sounding thing in the world. Uh, especially if you were to step into a lot of churches where family is the number one thing that's emphasized. Uh, then Jesus comes along, he says something like that, and you think, what do you mean by this? Why are you, why are you uh, okay with families being ripped apart? Why are you coming to rip families apart? Uh, what are you talking about? And, and I think what he's talking about, uh, which we'll get into, is sometimes we view family from the wrong lens. Sometimes we view family with the wrong perspective, as though family, our earthly families, our temporary families, end up becoming the number one priority in our lives. And sometimes when Jesus gets thrown into that mix, and some people are accepting of him, and some people are not, it can cause tension, and it can cause, uh, it, it can rend even a family apart. And what Jesus is saying is that even if that's the case, He's more important than family. When people are coming to church, the thing that unifies us isn't family, because there's something here more important than family. It's Jesus. And if you were to actually look at Jesus' own family, you'll see that there are some tensions there. You'll see that he doesn't have what we might consider that perfect, happy family unit. Uh, For example, his brothers and him didn't have a great relationship, it seems. His brothers didn't believe in him. In fact, they even mock him for it. They're not introduced too many times during the earthly ministry of Jesus, but every time they are, it's negative. And in John chapter 7, we're explicitly told that they did not believe in him. Uh, His brothers even mocked his ministry in that passage. So Jesus and his brothers didn't have this great relationship. Um, It's possible that Jesus, because of what he was doing, was actually bringing some embarrassment upon his family and his brothers. If you don't believe in Jesus, and he's your older brother, and he's going around making a big stir, causing big crowds, and you don't believe the things that he's saying, and then all of a sudden you start having him cause problems where the religious leaders who you do trust and believe are saying bad things about him, he is, by doing that, putting a dark cloud on your family name. His brothers probably didn't appreciate that very much. As a matter of fact, there's one passage that we'll look at here in a minute where his brothers seem to think he's out of his mind uh, and they want to put a stop to what he's doing. And, And so Jesus, his own family, wasn't always a fan of his ministry, didn't believe in what he was doing, and didn't think that what he was doing was casting them in a very good light. He had tension within his own family. Uh, His father, uh, Joseph, is introduced to us in the birth stories, but isn't in any of the stories after that. And we're not told exactly what happened. Uh, It's likely uh, that his dad died while Jesus was was a relatively young man. And, And so even there, you have the difficult dynamic of a family without a father. Uh, He has brothers and sisters who were younger than him. Uh, And Jesus, as the firstborn son, 
you would expect would be the one who kind of takes over the family and steps into his father's place, uh, maybe continuing on the family business. But instead what Jesus does is he goes on an itinerant uh, preaching mission where he leaves the family business and becomes a highly controversial teacher and preacher who ends up, because of his ministry, suffering the worst shame a person could endure and a thing that would keep a, a lasting shame upon them which was dying naked on a cross. Um, That's not the type of thing that you want your firstborn son to go through. It's not the type of thing that's going to to endear a family to someone who should be there providing for them. Now, that's not to say that Jesus didn't take care of his mom, because she seems to be a part of a lot of these traveling stories. In fact, she's with him all the way to the cross. And even while Jesus is on the cross, he's concerned about his mother, because he tells his beloved disciple— that as I'm dying, this is now your son and this is now your mother. He's in essence saying, I want you to take care of my mom, uh, take my role in my family from this point forward. But throughout all of that, you see that Jesus is not following the traditional family path. He is doing things that is causing tension. He's doing things that uh, is causing turmoil within his own family. And so when you feel tensions and turmoils and fights within your own family, you're in good company. Uh, Even Jesus experienced that. Jesus, as he speaks about family, um, he doesn't always elevate it to the number one thing in life. In fact, he doesn't ever do that. Um, Jesus sees a number of things that we tend to think of as good, by and large, as potential threats to what the kingdom is all about. Sometimes it's your money or your job. Sometimes it is uh, your allegiance to your country uh, or your people or your neighbors, uh, if you define them narrowly. Um, Sometimes it's even family. Each of those things can grab our allegiance. We can dedicate our lives to each of those things. And if you do so, you run the risk of lowering or lessening your devotion and your allegiance to, to his kingdom. And his kingdom, emphatically, more than anything else, is what matters most. And so within the midst of all of that dynamic about family and the kingdom and difficulty and all that stuff, I want us to turn to a passage in Mark chapter 3. That was just the introduction of the lesson, so this one's going to go a while. Uh, No, we'll... we'll, uh, The the percentage of this introduction is is more than than a lot of the other ones. But uh, in Mark chapter 3, that's the passage where we're going to be. And we're going to see one story that's in the midst of this difficult family dynamic of Jesus. And it deals with his brothers and his mother. In Mark chapter 3, if you look at verse 20, it says, And Jesus came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And when, as my translation puts it, his own people heard of this, Now, who are his own people? Um, Some of your translations might say different things. Some of them might say friends. Some of them might say family. I think that should be understood as family. Uh, They're usually who would be described as your own. And that's what it says in Greek. Those who were his own uh, is is the expression. That's usually going to be about family. And by the time you get to the end of the story, we're told explicitly who it is, uh, that it's his mother and his brothers. And so I think that's important to have in mind. Uh, This story is one of those stories that Mark 
Mark tells, where he begins it here and he ends it here and he puts a, another story in the middle of it. Sometimes it's called a Mark and Sandwich. We've talked about those before. Um, but this is one of them. And if you look at who his people are here, and if you look at the end of the story, you're told who those people are, and it seems to be his family. So in verse 21, it says, When his own family heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. So his brother and perhaps even his mother are quite concerned about what Jesus is doing. Uh, Mary knows something special is going to happen about Jesus. But I do wonder if as rumors swirl and as she, as she actually begins to see the ministry of Jesus as it's playing out, there is some confusion, there is some concern, there's even fear on her part. People are really getting to the point where they don't like him. In fact, in chapter 3 and verse 6, just a few verses earlier, It says the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So like political leaders and religious leaders are coming together to think about how they can put him to death, how they can destroy him. Um, They're doing that because Jesus is causing quite a controversy. He has been accused of blasphemy. He's been accused of breaking Sabbath. He's been accused of spending all of his time with tax collectors and with sinners and with the dregs of society. Like, you go through uh, everything that's been said about Jesus, and all of, if all you're doing, if you don't believe in him like his brothers don't, and you're hearing all of this stuff about him, yeah, it doesn't sound good. Uh, and so they are perhaps even out of love thinking, He's, he's losing control of what he's doing, and we need to get him. I, I could see Mary, perhaps confused, wanting to talk to her son, wanting to get him out of the spotlight for a minute so she can find out what is happening here. I think there's probably a lot of fear and a lot of concern about what's going on with Jesus from his brothers and from his mother. And so they're trying to get him to take custody of him, to, to get him away from the spotlight and to have some talks with him. One of the next things you see happening, if you're looking for rumors swirling about Jesus, look at verse 22. It says, The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. There's even theories and ideas spreading around him that he's in league with devils and demons. And and so there certainly is going to be concern if you love him. And from his brother's perspective, if you don't buy into what he's doing, There's a lot lot of fear about what he's doing right now. And so then the story moves off a little bit, and you get a a conversation between Jesus and some of the religious leaders. But as it comes to its conclusion, look at verse 31. This is when his own people or his family arrive. And it says, uh, verse 31, Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, Jesus said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. In this passage and in this story, Jesus redefines the way that we often think about family. And he actually, there's, there's two different groups that you could say are family. The ones who are outside, who are trying to uh, take control of him, and those who are inside listening to him. One of those he's related to by blood, and the other are those who he's related to by faith and by allegiance to God and by hearing and doing the will of God. And Jesus actually elevates one of those over the other one. Um, 
He's redefining what matters most. And perhaps is redefining the way we should be thinking about family as the people of God. Now, I don't think this is to say that, so we shouldn't talk anymore about family in church. Or we shouldn't try to strengthen marriages. Or we shouldn't try to help people with parenting. That stuff matters. It really does. Uh, But it is to say that we need to be careful that we don't accidentally become exclusive in a family's only club. We want to be careful that we don't forget that the individual family units within this building are wonderful and great and we want them to be blessed. However, the family that's in this building is what matters even most of all. And I think that could be a source of encouragement. I think that could be a source of encouragement in a number of ways. One, to those who have struggled with their family, they can still be part of a family. Those who have struggled in their marriage or with their children or with their parents can still have brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers who love them in a place that accepts them, in a place that is wanting to grow together with them in the most important unity that we could possibly have. It's a call to become family so that nobody comes here without family. Everyone who's here is family. Um, I want to look at another passage that I think conveys that idea. It's in Mark chapter 10, and this will be the last passage we look at before we draw our lesson to a close. Mark chapter 10 and verse 28. Peter is recognizing that by following Jesus, he has lost a lot. Um, He has left behind a business. He probably doesn't see his wife as much as he'd like to and in his family. And he has made sacrifices as a disciple and as a follower of Jesus. And he says in verse 28 of Matthew chapter 10, or sorry, of Mark chapter 10, Peter began to say to him, behold, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in this present age Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. And many who are first will be last and the last first. You read through that passage and the idea of it is, yeah, sometimes following Jesus might even cause some conflict in your personal families. But everyone who makes the decision to follow Jesus ends up being welcomed into a family with hundreds of mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. Family that's throughout the whole world. I, can, I, I remember one time, uh, Lauren and I, we were going to go on a cruise. It was years ago, and it was leaving out of Charleston, and we went to church Sunday morning, and uh, we had never been there before. But just in our brief time there, uh, we were able to go to someone's house, and uh, they let us keep our car at their house for the week that we were going to be gone. And they drove us. We didn't know these people other than the fact that we were brothers and sisters in Christ. But the reason they did that was just to save us some money on parking. But it's like you can go somewhere where you don't know anyone other than the church. And all of a sudden you're welcomed into people's homes. You're treated like family. Um, when, when our house flooded years ago, uh, we were welcomed into the people's homes who are our family. We had people who helped us get our house back in order. Like, we were treated as, as family, even though neither of us lived next to our parents or our brothers or our sisters. We were surrounded by parents and brothers and sisters who loved us. And, and I think a lot of us in here probably have stories like that. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at. When you become part of his united family, you have brothers and you have sisters and you have mothers and you have fathers around the world and here in your own community. 
and you should be treated as such. So if we're going to, to, to bring our lesson to a close, there are three things that I think perhaps uh, we could think about as we begin this series on family. Number one, our calling as a church is to be family. So that no matter who comes in here, no matter what their family situation is like, if they have no family, if they have a difficult situation with their family, or if they have a happy situation with their family, they can still find family here. They will have uh, people here who will love them and treat them as their own. Number two, I don't think Jesus rejects family or even de-emphasizes it. Rather, I think if you read all these passages, what you see Jesus doing is expanding the idea of family. Uh, He takes what we think of as family and he opens the door to an expanded version of it that includes everyone within the community of God. And that's what he elevates. So, number three, the goal is for us not to have to make a choice between my earthly, physical family in my house and the family of God, but rather for them to be one and the same, for us to be able to see our brother and our sister and our mother and father become one of our many brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers so that we can share in that family together. And throughout this series, we're going to be talking about ways we can try to do that. We can see these families as one and the same. We can unite them together um, while at the same time recognizing that that's not always going to be possible. It's not always going to happen, but that doesn't mean you're without family. The family of God accepts you and loves you and invites you to be one of their own. And as we bring our lesson to a close, if there's anyone here this morning who would like to become part of the family of God, through the forgiveness, through the love of Jesus, uh, through his death on the cross, and through the life-giving hope of his resurrection. We pray that you would let that be known. You can name Jesus as the Lord of your life. You can have your sins washed away in baptism this morning. If you have a need, you can meet with one of our elders in the library in the back, or you can sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.